The eye is an incredible instrument. As one resource notes, no scientific instrument is as sensitive to the light as a person's eye. In the dark, its sensitivity increases 100,000 times. One can detect a faint glow less than a thousandth as bright as a candle's flame. We can see light from the stars. And the nearest of all stars is 25 billion miles away. That's the nearest. And we can see it. I mean, more than that, the human eye it stands as a testament to the intelligence of its creator. As I say that, I say that as someone who wears contact lenses, else I would be wearing very, very thick glasses right now in front of you. <laughs> And I know many of you are wearing glasses as well as I look out. And why is that? Well, sin has created problems in the eyes of many individuals. It has also caused people to use their eyes incorrectly. As one story goes, Augustine was once accosted by a heathen who showed him his idol and said, here is my God, where is thine? Augustine replied, I cannot show you my God, not because there is no God to show you, but because you have no eyes to see him. He was not using his eyes correctly. And the truth is that folks have eyes but they are not eyes which are capable of seeing God. We need our spiritual eyes opened. And that is what we see as we are completing the account of the blind man this morning. We've seen Jesus heal this man from a unique malady. It is a congenital condition. He was born blind. Uh, there is no recording in Scripture of any other person ever having been healed of such a condition, specifically. Yet, what should be a moment of rejoicing for this individual quickly becomes a time of sorrow as neighbors and religious leaders accost him. They begin to pepper him with questions. And they ultimately decide that they should shun him from their lives. He should be put out of the synagogue. But even as this challenge is going on, he is being forced through the uh, crucible of this trial to use his eyes in a different way. To see Jesus in a way that he wouldn't have seen Jesus otherwise. And eventually, it is because of this that he can come to full belief in Jesus Christ. 
In fact, even though he had never been able to use his eyes before, he eventually uses them more accurately than those who have used their eyes all of their lives. And that's the great irony of this account. The sad reality is that many people have eyes, but they never use them correctly. They never see beyond what's right in front of them. And Jesus is the test of whether someone uses his eyes correctly or not. And so we'll note a special irony in this passage. We will note today that the blind become the seeing and the seeing become the blind. What do I mean by that? Well, first the blind become the seeing. Let's go back to verse 35 and reconsider these verses. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Hmm. We considered last time what it means to be put out of the synagogue. There is equivalence to our practice of excommunication, of church discipline, to put it in a, different, in a different term. But we saw with this case where he is put out of the synagogue that there is a, there, there is a graceless, unforgiving method that they underwent. And, and in fact, we would even go so far as to call the method that they used tyrannical. It's one that's devoid of true godliness and one that is, in truth, antichrist to the core. Because that is why they're putting him out, because they are antichrist in this moment. As one commentary notes here, by this example, we are taught how trivial and how Little to be dreaded are the excommunications of the enemies of Christ. By the way, I should note that this commentary written hundreds of years ago was written at a time when many people were being put out for their profession of faith in the gospel. They're being put out of the Roman Catholic Church. And he says here, we are taught how trivial and how little to be dreaded are the excommunications of the enemies of Christ. If we are cast out from that assembly in which Christ reigns, it is a dreadful judgment which is executed against us, that we are delivered to Satan because we are banished from the kingdom of the Son of God. And that is something to be dreaded right there if we do engage in church discipline as a body that holds to the word of God. That is something to fear. That is something to be dreaded. We, we, we don't want that to happen to us. But so far as we 
or but so far are we from having any reason to dread that tyrannical judgment by which wicked men insult the servants of Christ that even though no man should drive us out we ought of our own accord to flee from that place in which Christ does not preside by his word and spirit. It is better to come out from among her, as scripture says, rather than to remain. But this man, obviously, in the midst of this time, is going to start to feel the sting of this. He's going to start to feel the sorrow of this. And, and again, this is not just affecting his attendance at the synagogue. It is also going to begin to affect his his engagements with his neighbors, his commerce, his business. And this is a man who now has to enter into business for the first time. Having his sight, he can no longer rely on the handouts of others because he's not blind anymore. So he has to engage. And yet in the midst of that, he's now put out of the synagogue. And, and what could have been a network for him, a, 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 a resource center for him, among the people of God, supposedly the people of God, now he's put out from their midst. And you'd say, wow, this, this, this individual, he must be experiencing deep sorrow in this moment. He must need some comfort. Well, guess what happens? Jesus goes and he finds him in his need of comfort. Because as Jesus says, he does not leave us comfortless or as orphans. And he will come to us. And we know that today he comes to us in his spirit. But in this moment, before Jesus is lifted up on the cross and then ascended into heaven, he is physically on the earth and he goes and he finds this man. He seeks him out. He knows the heartache that he now experiences and the Lord always takes this initiative, by the way. The Lord will seek us out. We often hear people searching for God, but the good news is that he comes and he finds us, right? Especially when we need him. Moreover, the Lord doesn't have to search, by the way. It's not like he's like, oh, that guy got put out. Oh, no, I guess I should go find him. Well, does anyone know what his address is? Maybe we should call him. Oh, we don't have phones yet. Well, let's see what we can do. No, Jesus knew exactly where he was and he found him. So once Jesus comes to this man, he asks him that important question. Do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe in the son of man? Now, I, I, I'm aware that some of you are using the King James and New King James Bibles, and that's all right, of course. Um, but there is a slightly different designation in those Bibles. We read the Son of God. Now, of course, both of these are titles that refer to Jesus Christ. But in this case, uh, a manuscript error did uh, result in the King James and then the New King James following uh, recording the Son of God in this instance. It should be Son of Man. Uh, and the Son of Man, to give a little nuance to that particular title, we've talked about this before. This is a title that is Messianic. It is in reference to the coming Messiah, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, who goes before God. 
and 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 this was a reference that they understood to refer to the messiah they understood that this referred to the messiah and so in other words this man would have understood jesus is asking him do you believe in the messiah do you believe in the messiah and that is of course the vital question that is the vital question and we could eat, or I could ask that of you, and I hope that you in your own hearts can answer that. Do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah? You say, well, that's a personal question. I hope you don't ex expect me to answer publicly. Well, Jesus asked this man publicly. <laughs> and as we're going to note in just a few minutes, there were others around to hear this man's answer. Jesus is asking this man, in other words, to make a public declaration, not to just say in, in private that he believes in Jesus, but to say it publicly that he believes in Jesus. Now, I will say this with that. The way that the that the question is constructed, it seems like Jesus is expecting a positive answer, not a negative answer. And let me ask you this. Do you think that Jesus would know whether this man would believe or not? Yes. Yes, he, he knows. So, so he, it's not like he's putting this man on the spot necessarily. He knows what the man's answer is going to be. He knows where this man's heart is. And remember what we've, what we've already studied over the last few weeks. This man has proved himself able with, with, with spiritual matters. And he's been growing in his knowledge of who Jesus is. We, we saw that he just believed that Jesus was a man now, and then he said he was a prophet. And now we can see that he's growing in his understanding of who Jesus is. And so Jesus, knowing this, asks this man this question, and he's and, and, and doing this, drawing true faith from this man's heart. He's drawing out the true faith that is in this man's heart. And so this man is ready to believe. And that is evident in what he says in the next verse. It's evident to the rest of us. It was already evident to the Lord. It's evident to the rest of us now. What does he say? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And so he, he's, he's saying, look, I'm, oh, just tell me, point me to who the Messiah is so that I may believe in him. He's ready. He's ready. Now that word Lord there, kurios, can be translated one of two ways. It could be translated Lord or Sir. I think it, 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 well, it's not just what I think. Context always determines what a word should be translated as. And in this case, I think the word Sir is a little bit more fitting but then he uses the exact same word later in verse 38 when he says, Lord, I believe. And I think Lord is more fitting there. And so just to add a little bit of nuance to, to how he responds, 
Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And then in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. That's because this man is, is, is going through this process. And he, he because he's formerly blind, he doesn't yet know who Jesus is. He, he knows Jesus healed him, but, but he wouldn't recognize him by sight yet. He didn't see Jesus yet. And he would also need revelation as to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jesus didn't come to him and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. Do you want me to heal your eyes? He didn't put it that quite that way, right? It was for this man to come to this point of belief, right? So he needs to understand so that he can have proper saving faith. But you to understand saving faith must have an object. Saving faith must have an object. We don't just believe for belief's sake. Because if I just say you must believe, your question should be believe what? Because that's just an empty jar. If I say believe, you, I'm telling you to fill the empty jar with whatever you want. Believe. Believe what? I don't know. Believe in the Easter Bunny. <laughs> right? Believe in the Tooth Fairy. It, it could be anything we could fill that jar with. But saving faith must have an object. It's not fully, it's not my faith that saves me. In fact, as one commentary notes, one study notes here, it's Jesus, not faith, which saves. It's Jesus, not faith, which saves. Faith is only a channel to the worthy object, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to point. It's like laying a pipe in the ground. You say, ah, now we have water. Not just because we have a pipe in the ground, right? It has to be attached to something. There has to be a source of water. It's not just faith. It's faith in. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is only a channel to the worthy object, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Romans 10, 14, if you want to take a peek over here to the right, Romans 10. Romans 10, of course, if, if you're unfamiliar with the Romans road, Romans 10 is the place you usually end here. And usually note here in verse 10, for instance, for with a with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Verse 9, the verse before that, you confess with your mouth the Lord, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You say, how is a person saved? It is a person who confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. It's a person who believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Verse 11, for scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 
Amen to that. Verse 14. Here's the problem, though. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They need to know Jesus, right? They need to hear about him. They need to know who he is. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? We need to be faithful in sharing the gospel message so that they know who Jesus is. Thankfully, in this, in this man's case, it's not just that he believes, it's that he is about to get revelation about who Jesus Christ really is so that he will know exactly who he should believe in. He's about to get a word from the living word. Right? He's about to get a word from the living word. This is revelation that he needs so that he can be saved. Y'all, there's no other name under heaven or earth by which men are saved. It's only Jesus Christ. And this is who we must see. Not literally, of course. I'm talking about spiritual sight. I'm talking about spiritual sight. Being able to see that he is the one who saves us. Now, of course, for this man, and, 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 and God bless him, he, he could see now Jesus literally. And Jesus says, you have seen him. Which is just a great way to start. He could have just said, yeah, it's me. Right? He could have just said it that way. I love the way the Lord leads the man along. You have, you have seen him. He starts there. And, of course, Jesus says this right after and this may be a day later, but, but you understand it's, it's, it's following his miracle that he has performed on this man's eyes. And he can say with confidence, you have seen him. So I, I don't know if this man was, was mentally saying, okay, who are all the people I've seen within the last several hours or however long it's been since this healing. Okay, so one of those individuals, one of those faces is the face of the Messiah, is the face of the Son of Man. But Jesus doesn't leave him there. He says, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. Oh, praise God. The search is over. Of course, the Messiah came and he found him, right? But the search is over. Who was the Messiah? He's the one talking to you. And Jesus says those new eyes uh, that have seen the Messiah and those ears which have been working can, can hear him. He's right here. He's right here. Jesus was just as clear with the woman at the well, by the way. When, uh, when she asked in John 4, 26, he told her, yeah, yeah, it's me, basically. He reveals himself to this man in much the same way. Why? Because this man's ready to hear. And what an amazing bit of revelation to receive. Why do I call it revelation, by the way? Because this man wouldn't have been able to determine it on his own. He needed it to, he needed it to be revealed to him. 
He needed his spiritual eyes to be open, not just his physical eyes. And that is why this revelation was needed. And it is an amazing revelation to receive. Another study notes this is poor man was solicitously inquiring after the Savior. When at the same time he saw him and was talking with him. Note, Jesus Christ is often nearer the souls that seek him than they themselves are aware of. Did you catch that? Let me, let me repeat it. Jesus Christ is often nearer the souls that seek him than they themselves are aware of. Ooh. Doubting Christians are sometimes saying, where is the Lord? And fearing that they are cast out from his sight when at the same time it is he who talks with them and puts strength into them. Yo, Jesus is here this morning. He is with his people. And I hope that whatever you're going through this morning, you will see that he is often nearer than you even realize. He is here. Just as he was there with that man, he reveals himself to that man. And how does this man respond? He responds with the only way he would respond, given all of that, given all that the Lord has already done for him, given all that the Lord has revealed to him, and all that the Lord has been working in his heart. He says, Lord, I believe. And I do think that's the right way to translate that, by the way. Lord, kurios. He, he, is, he is declaring him to be Lord. And I want you to see this. And when the Lord is at work in someone's life, they respond with faith. Whoever that person is, he, she, they, they respond with faith. And we can see this man's faith by his works, as James 2 would say. What works are those? Well, first, he's willing to say it. He's willing to say he believes. Did, did, just, just, just believing itself is a good work. It's a good work, though, that, that, that he is wrought within our hearts. And so we just respond in, in, in faith and in gratitude. But he says it. He says it out loud in front of all the listening ears. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't look around him nervously and, and kind of inch closer. Jesus say, yeah, I, I believe. He, he doesn't, he, he's willing to say it out loud. And then he's willing to do something else in case anyone didn't hear him. They can't mistake this next work. 
The text says he falls down. Prostrate. He worships him. In front of everybody, in front of the Pharisees, this man worships Jesus. He gets on the ground before Jesus and he worships him. Ooh. There's one commentary notes of this man, his worship of Jesus replaced his worship in the synagogue. Oof. And I, I, I hope you understand that the Lord is allowing this. He could have said, wait a minute. Oh, wait, don't do that. Don't do that. That, that, that. that happened in other places. You might remember um, when Peter first visited Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 to share the gospel message with him. Cornelius had had a vision that this was about to happen. And so when Peter comes to share the good news of the gospel with him, a Gentile, he, he, he responds by falling down and worshiping Peter. Because he's, he's excited to hear the good news of the gospel. We say, okay, I understand your motives. Uh, Peter's the wrong guy to worship, though, right? <laughs> and Peter himself says that. Acts chapter 10, verse 25, 26 details this. And Peter tells them there in verse 26, stand up. Stand up. I, too, am just a man. He, does, he doesn't want to be worshipped. The same thing happens with John. The Apostle John, who is an old man by the time he writes the book of Revelation, he receives a vision, and, and at one point he forgets himself, and he falls down and, and before an angel and begins to worship. Now, that's the Apostle John. So, you know, if, we, if you make a big error in your life, understand even the apostles made errors, right? The, the apostle John falls down and he begins to worship this angel. And the angel says, no, no, do not worship me. Worship God alone. I am but a servant like you. We don't worship men. We don't worship angels. But in the case of Jesus, he allows it. Standing in front of all the naysayers, standing in front of all the people who are against him, he stands there and he allows this man to worship him. Why? Because Jesus should be worshipped. This man is modeling what everyone else should be doing. He, he allows it. He allows it another time, too. John chapter 20 Verse 28, we always talk about doubting Thomas. Oh, that doubting Thomas. You know what doubting Thomas did, though? He fell down and he worshiped Jesus. He's the first disciple, we read there, who did that. And he calls him my God. John 20, verse 28. And Jesus doesn't say, now, wait a minute, you got the wrong idea about me. 
You're going to start some weird religion if you keep that up. No, no. He allows it. He says, blessed are you, but blessed are those who believe and who haven't seen. Right? Later on, again, Revelation, John does worship Jesus. And we read that the angels in heaven bow down and worship the Lamb. That's what we're going to be doing in heaven, worshiping Jesus. Might as well get started now, right? This, this, this man is doing the right thing right here. He's saved and he responds in the right way. And this is the completion of this man's spiritual development. Again, back in verse 11, we saw that he referred to Jesus as a man. Verse 17, he referred to Jesus as a, as a prophet. Now he, he, he affirms Jesus is the Messiah. His spiritual eyes have opened up. He sees that Jesus is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world, as, jo as John the Baptist had said. And he offers him worship. He's ready to say it publicly. He doesn't care who hears. He's already been put out of the synagogue. Right? He, he just falls down and he worships. And Jesus allows it. And by the way, that's the kind of attitude that we should have too. Uh, where where, where we, we don't care what other people will say about us if they see us worshiping Jesus. You know, Jesus talked about the importance of public acknowledgement. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. I've heard preachers sometimes use that incorrectly to refer to the altar call. And I don't think that that's what Jesus is referencing there. If you want to come up and pray, you are welcome to. And I will pray with you. Or we can pray at some other time. That's not what this is referring to. This is referring to you standing in the middle of people who are hostile to you. And who say to you, you well, you, you're not one of those Christians, right? What are you going to say in that moment? That's something to think about, right? Well, you don't believe in Jesus, right? You, you, you don't believe in the magical sky daddy, do you? So that's one of the favorites of some internet atheists out there, right? You don't believe in that, do you? They're mocking you. They're mocking me. They're mocking all believers. They're mocking Jesus. What are you going to do? Shrivel up at the mockery and say, oh no, someone's going to have a bad opinion of me. Or are you going to value the opinion of the Lord more and say, yes, I believe in him. And you should too. And if you have a few minutes, I'd love to tell you why I believe in him. Don't deny him before men. 
But those who do deny him, he says he will deny before the Father and who is in heaven. And that's going to include the next group here. Because, see, both representations of people are here in this passage. We've, we've read about the one who would affirm Jesus before men, but now we're about to read about those who would deny him. And that's what we see next. Those who are seeing, supposedly, becoming spiritually blind. The seeing become the blind. Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who are with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Now Jesus says he came here for judgment. Now that might confuse you because you say, Wait a minute, now, it does seem like I've read already that he said he wasn't here for judgment. Of course, in John 3.17, in the English, that's what it says. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. But sometimes we don't always see this because we are reading a translation. There are different words being used here. Uh, in this case, the word is krima. It's different than the word that's in John 3.17, which is krino. What's the difference in meaning there? Well, in John 3, we're reading that Jesus did not come to condemn people to hell. He came to save souls from hell. But here, this is the kind of judgment which happens when there is a sorting or, or, or sifting that's happening. This, this is a kind of judgment that happens all the time. You know, people say, don't be judgmental. And yet, uh, you kids, when you went back there to the fellowship hall, you looked upon the donuts and you said, this one, not that one, right? You said, I do not want the powder, right? Or I do want the chocolate or I want the glaze, right? There is a kind of sifting or sorting that's happening in your mind there. Well, when Jesus comes, he, he just naturally divides people into two groups. Those who believe and those who don't. Those who believe and those who don't. Really, in a sense, people divide themselves in that way. But as an aspect of his first coming, uh, there is judgment that happens. There is a division that happens. We have Christmas time coming up, and I know a lot of you are getting ready and thinking about, okay, what are the cards we're going to send off? Uh, you know, and we could, we could put, you know, Luke 2 on a card. We could put Isaiah 714 on a card. You know, what verse do you want to put on a card? We don't normally hear Matthew 34 as a suggestion to be put on a card. What does that say? It says this. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. <laughs> you don't normally see that on a Christmas card, right? 
<laughs> Wait a minute, I got all these all these ornaments on my Christmas tree that say peace on earth. Right? Well, it, it, there is a sense in which there is peace on earth because Jesus came to save souls from God who would pour out his wrath upon those souls otherwise. And so now there's peace. Peace among people with whom God is pleased. But there's also going to be a division that happens with those who, with whom God is pleased and those with whom God is not pleased, like the Pharisees here. There's a division that's going to happen between those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. And sadly, even in Matthew 10, we see that in verses 35 and 36, Jesus goes on to say this, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will become the members of his household. There is a sifting that's going to happen. And that's what Jesus does. He, he, he begins to divide people up into those who believe and those who don't believe. And even within our own households, we see that sometimes. We, we have kids who grow up who say, I don't want to believe that. And then we have others who, who, who we thought would never come to Christ, <laughs> who all of a sudden are, are bowing down and worshiping Jesus. And we say, what is going on? Well, the Lord is at work. The Lord is at work. And his very presence brings that judgment. But for those who believe, they will have their eyes open to this new reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And they can see this because of the grace of Christ. It's not because they're smarter. I don't believe that Jesus is, is Lord because I'm smarter than other people. It's not that. In fact, it's, it's, it's only by the grace of God. Because there are those who love their sin and refuse to believe. And they will find that the truth is that even what they could see, they begin to get blind to. The Pharisees, understand, were very educated people. I hope you don't think, oh, I could win in a debate against the Pharisees. No, probably not. Right? They knew the scripture inside and out. They were educated people, and they knew the word of God. So they had their eyes open to a little bit of light. But because they used that light to then reject Jesus, Jesus says that he is actually going to blind their spiritual eyes so they can't even see that light. And there are those who will experience this. I always think of the story of two preachers in the mid-20th century. Two men of the gospel. One was named, if I'm not mistaken, Charles Templeton. The other was a little known name, Billy Graham. Well, a little known at one point. Templeton is now known 
by posterity for uh, it, for unbelief. Why? Because he rejected the gospel. And he came to a point of unbelief, and a foundation actually has been set up in his name to further unbelief. That light that he had, he became blind to because he chose to reject the message of the gospel. Others had their eyes opened. And so it's in this context that Jesus talks about this coming judgment. Now you might say, well, why? Why does it, or why is it that Jesus says this in response to the man saying, Lord, I believe. Because this man needs to hear this as a comfort to him. You know, we could think of places like 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, which says this. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in the flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In this case, the afflictors of this man are standing right there. They are rejecting the gospel message. They put this man out because of his acceptance of the gospel message. And Jesus says, yes, there's going to be a judgment for them. And this man needed to hear this. For the road ahead of him is going to be more difficult because of his professed faith in Jesus. So it's for the sake of comfort that Jesus says this. For his comfort and as a warning for the others. He wants this man to know that his suffering is known. And that, he, and that the Lord will act on his behalf. Y'all, we need to hear this. Some of you children and young people are going to public school right now. And I know that's a dark place. It was a dark place when I went. It's only gotten darker. Now I know that there are students, your peers, who know that you go to church and who would mock you because of your faith in Jesus. I know that there are teachers who would try to discourage your faith in Jesus. Of course, my kids know that these things can exist in homeschool groups as well and in, in private schools as well. So it's not like there's a magic formula here. We have to face this from time to time. Some of you will go on to college where the pressure to conform with the world will only intensify. You will work in jobs that adults in here could tell you right now may try to force you to attend training sessions and sign off on documents which go against the Bible.
And in the power of Christ, I can tell you this. You don't have to be afraid of that. You don't have to be afraid of any of that. You can stand strong in the midst of all of that. And you can know this, that the Lord sees any suffering that you experience, and he will give you the grace to endure it. He will give you the grace to persevere. He will give you the grace to carry on. And for those who would persist in their unbelief, the Lord has a word for them, that he will act on your behalf. Now, it's at this point that the Pharisees get a little bothered by this, and they say, well, we're not blind too, are we? They, they, they expect a negative response, like Jesus is going to say, oh, no, not you guys. We're talking about someone else. But they pipe up, and, G and it's because he's injured their pride. And this all just proves just how blind they already have become. Romans 2.19 says uh, that they are a guide. They are a confident guide uh, to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. That's what they think anyway. But Jesus has already said in Matthew 15, 14, that they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. They have eyes, but they cannot see. And so Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that there, there, there's a point in all of our lives, even though we're born sinners and we are all born sinners. But there, there is a time in our lives where we are just too young to recognize our sin. We're, 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 we're just not capable of knowing our sin. A small, small child does not always understand sin. A person with a severe mental handicap can live his whole life and not comprehend his sinfulness. You say, well, what happens to babies? What happens to small children? What happens to those who uh, have such mental uh, disabilities. Jesus happily pays for the sins of those who have no resources in themselves. He happily pays for those. He gives grace to the least of these. Y'all, the problem is when we think we've got something that we can provide. Well, I'm not like them. I'm not like a small child. I'm an adult. I, I, I'm smart. Really? As Jesus said, become like a little child to enter the kingdom. You need to realize that you don't have resources of your own, that you can't save yourself. I'm sorry, Pharisees, but the, but the tithing of the mint and the common, that's not going to get you into heaven. The fasting twice a week, that's not going to get you into heaven. The, 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 the righteous displays that you put on where you lengthen the tassels on your cloaks and you, you broaden the phylacteries on your arms and on your foreheads, that's not going to earn you a place in the kingdom of God. 
It's not by works. And dear Christian, it's not by your, your, your giving to the church. It's not by your baptism. It's not by any of these things that you're going to get into heaven. It's only through one man, Jesus Christ. Only he can do the work that's going to save you. And if you refuse to see that, you're going to find that the Lord will, 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 will judicially blind you from even what you can see. You're going to find that sin can make you even dumber than what you may already think of yourself. Because, you know, sin does make us stupid. And those who are intelligent will find themselves to be fools in order to get around what God has clearly said in his word. You're not going to get yourself there. It's only through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says their sin abides and remains. And that's a sad state of, of affairs because Jesus will say in John 14 that the Holy Spirit could, could abide and remain with us. But instead of having communion with God, they have communion with their sin. You can just continue to abide and remain in your sin instead of in God. That's a fearful reality. It's a fearful reality that many who have eyes who think they can see can't. They can't. They put their faith in their religious knowledge. They put their faith in their academic knowledge. They put their faith in maybe the knowledge of others. Hey, if a certain celebrity isn't concerned about Jesus or, or eternal matters, then I shouldn't be. Some people are just distracted by every bright toy and bouncy ball that comes along, and they never think about these things. This is all spiritual blindness. This is all spiritual blindness. But if you say, well, that's a problem. I want to be able to see. Okay, that's good. You've started with an admission that you don't have the resources on your own. And so what do you do? You ask the Lord for grace. You ask the Lord to open your eyes. And you put your faith in him. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter if you're going to draw negative attention from your peers. You just say, I'm going to worship him. I don't care who sees. I'm going to bow down. And so you ask him to give you spiritual sight. You ask him to, to save you from your personal darkness. And he will. He will because he's a gracious, gracious savior. And you say, yes, but I've done a lot of things. Well, the good thing about Jesus Christ is that he's a greater savior than you are a sinner.